Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have promised that the word of your mouth will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. Would that gospel seed take root in our hearts today and bear good and plentiful fruit. May it multiply among us and may it be scattered to the very ends of the earth. Would you work now for the salvation of your elect, for the renewing of the hearts of your people, for we pray it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You'll please open your Bibles. We're continuing in our series through the Paul's letter to the Romans, to uh, Romans 9, 24 through 29. Find this in the Pew Bibles on page 945. Just to recall the context, we'll begin reading in verse 14. Here now, this is God's holy, infallible word. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people... I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This week on Thursday, we will celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful time to gather with family, to enjoy a good meal. But most of all, it's about giving thanks to God who has so richly blessed us in his son, Jesus Christ. He gives us many good gifts in his daily provision, but Christ Jesus is the greatest gift of all. For through faith in him, we receive forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. In our passage this morning, Paul is defending the claim that he laid out at the very beginning of the letter 
You know the verse 116, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's hard for us to grasp today how offensive this claim would have been to many when Paul originally wrote it. It was a time when most Jews believed that salvation was simply received by being born a Jew. And if anything more than that was required, it was required to earn your own salvation by faithfully doing the works of the law. Paul argues that in the gospel, God offers salvation to all, Jew and Gentile alike, and this salvation not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We should give thanks for this glorious good news this week. Now, the gospel was offensive then. It continues to be offensive today, but usually for different reasons. People today are offended by the concept of sin, the concept of God's judgment on sinners. They are offended by the idea of hell and that they need to be saved at all. Furthermore, many are offended by the doctrine that Paul has so elegantly defended here in chapter 9, the sovereignty of God in salvation. Salvation depends ultimately on God, who chooses before the foundation of the world, whom he will effectually call to faith in Christ. Last time we saw Paul defend this doctrine against common objections which accuse God of injustice. But as Paul argues, man is responsible for his sin and God is free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy and to harden whomever he will. He is the potter. We are the clay. And so God endures with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. So in the end, God does all this to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. As we've worked our way through chapter 9, we've seen that Paul is demonstrating that God's word has not failed, his promises are not void, and he is perfectly just in the way he saves those whom he freely chooses. In our passage this morning, he concludes this main section of chapter 9 by establishing God's freedom to save only a remnant of Israel. Again, by quoting from the Old Testament, as well as to extend his salvation even to the Gentiles. This morning, as we look at these verses in detail, my encouragement to you is to receive this good news, to give thanks to God for all the glory, all the thanksgiving, all the praise goes to him. Let's first look at verse 24. This is a bridge verse which both concludes Paul's thought in verse 23, but also introduces the topic he will explore in verses 25 through 29. So I'll read again from verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is saying, we are those vessels of mercy prepared for glory. And this includes both Jews and Gentiles. We also see that Paul is again using the language that was so prominent, verses 6 and 12, speaking of God's election 
and his calling. It is God who chooses, God who predestines, God who prepares beforehand all this done before the foundation of the world. But then in time, at the appointed time for each one, he calls us to himself through the gospel. This parallels the golden chain we saw back in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When we get to chapter 10, next time, we'll see exactly how that call goes out with power through the preaching of the gospel. So far in chapter 9, Paul has been teaching God's sovereignty and election to defend God against the charge of being unfaithful or unjust in not choosing every single individual Israelite. Whereas he said in verses 6 and 7, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And now he wants to show how that same sovereign freedom of God means that God is also free to call the Gentiles to salvation as well. We too, Gentiles, can become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. While the inclusion of the Gentiles may have been a surprise, even an offense to the Jews of Paul's day, Paul's argument is that this should not have been a surprise at all. In fact, this was the very thing foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. As we saw in our reading in Ephesians 3, Paul called the inclusion of the Gentiles the mystery hidden for ages. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3.6. When Paul calls this a mystery, something that was previously hidden but now is revealed, he is not saying it was something completely unknown, completely hidden, something that has just come completely out of nowhere. Instead, it's just like a good mystery novel. There are all kinds of clues sprinkled throughout the story. And for us, clues sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament pointing to God's plan for the nations. It just wasn't quite clear how to put all the clues together until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, now that the mystery has been fully revealed, we look back and we see that the clues were there all along. So now Paul will point to two of these clues by quoting from the prophets Hosea and Isaiah. Of course, there were many other passages he could have cited here. He could have quoted from the call to Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. Or he could have quoted from Psalm 87, which we sang earlier. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born in there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. In other words, these pagan nations, the enemies of Israel, would be said to have been born in Zion. In Jerusalem, numbered among her holy inhabitants. There are far too many clues to consider them all this morning. So we'll look in detail what Paul quotes from Hosea and Isaiah. All throughout chapter 9, we've seen that Paul proves his points repeatedly by quoting from the Old Testament. Earlier, his Old Testament quotations were interspersed 
with his own commentary, but here he simply strings the quotations together to make his point. So reading again verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Here Paul is quoting two verses from Hosea, 2.23 and 1.10. And Paul is using these verses to show how God has included the Gentiles, who were not his people, but those who are now called in Jesus Christ become sons of the living God. To understand Paul's point here, we should first consider what Hosea was saying to Israel in his original context over 700 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. God called Hosea to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel shortly before they would fall under his judgment and at the hands of the Assyrians, the kingdom would be destroyed and the people carried off into exile. This was a time of deep apostasy in Israel. The people had forsaken the Lord and given themselves to the worship of Baal. And so to create a living parable of the situation, God ordered Hosea to marry Gomer, who would be unfaithful to him. His marriage to an unfaithful spouse who then abandoned him, sold herself into slavery, would be a picture of the covenant relationship between the Lord and Israel. The people, Israel, had abandoned the Lord. Gomer's three children are part of this living parable. While her first child, Jezreel, was fathered by Hosea, her next two children were born of adulterous affairs. And the names Hosea gives to these children are striking. The daughter is named Lo Ruhamah, which can be translated no mercy or not loved. The son is named Lo Ami, which means not my people. Can you imagine it today giving such a name to one of your children? Can you imagine introducing your daughter to a friend saying, this is my daughter. Her name is unloved. Or introducing your son. Here is my son. His name is illegitimate. Or we like to call him not my kid. Hosea is demonstrating that Israel had forsaken the Lord and had married herself and been sold into slavery to Baal. Her covenant relationship with the Lord was broken by idolatry, and so she had become not my people in the eyes of the Lord. But then Hosea acts out and prophesies the good news. At some point in this sordid affair, Gomer had sold herself into slavery, most likely as a cult prostitute at one of the altars of Baal. But now God calls Hosea to redeem Gomer, to purchase her out of slavery, to remarry her, and to give the children new names. They will now be called Beloved and My People. God will redeem his people from their slavery to sin and will again call them My People. And they will again call him My God. Now the difficult interpretational question in the original context is this. When is this prophecy fulfilled? How is it fulfilled? Soon after this prophecy was given, Israel, still unrepentant, was conquered by Assyria. The great majority of the people were carried off into exile, 
and they have been lost to history. They're often now known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now it's true, some did return to the Lord. Some escaped from that judgment. They moved south to Judah and they were incorporated into that southern kingdom. And in that way, they were included back into God's people. So we can say there was a small, partial fulfillment of this prophecy in Hosea's day. But the majority of Israel were scattered abroad and incorporated into the Gentile nations. The question remains, was a greater fulfillment of this prophecy still to come? Now Paul takes these verses and he says they apply to the inclusion of the Gentiles through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how? How do they apply? Some argue there is simply a a partial parallel here. Just as God previously took some Israelites who had become not my people and restored them to be my people, so in a similar way, God is now taking from the Gentile nations who were not my people and making them his people through calling them to faith in Jesus Christ. That's one interpretation. God is doing something similar to what he had done in Hosea's day. And I believe Paul is making a much stronger argument here. He is saying that now with the coming of Jesus Christ, the greater fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea is finally coming to pass. Now at last, God has flung wide the gates of salvation to all nations, to all who were formerly not my treasured and beloved people. And from them, God is calling men and women to himself and incorporating them into the one true Israel. They are now called sons of the living God, having received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. This interpretation is confirmed by Peter, whose first letter is written to the elect exiles dispersed throughout Asia Minor, who were primarily Gentile converts. And yet he writes to them, saying, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And so we see the Gentiles are welcomed in in fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. These passages also make it clear that it is not that God has now chosen a second people for himself in addition to Israel, as taught by the dispensationalists, but rather that Gentile believers are now included with the remnant of true Israel in the one people of God. So God calls the Gentiles to himself in Jesus Christ, but he also preserves a remnant of Israel. And so verses 27 and 28 quote from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And verse 29 quotes Isaiah 1, 9. And as Isaiah predicted... If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, 
we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In these verses, Paul is reflecting on the fact that he had lamented earlier in the chapter, if you'll recall. Despite the many blessings that Israel had received, relatively few of the Jews had put their faith in the long-awaited Messiah who had finally come. However, Paul is making it clear that God had not abandoned his people. His word had not failed. He is still calling vessels of mercy, and this includes a faithful remnant of Israelites, just as Isaiah had predicted. Here again, we'll consider the passage in their the passages in their original context, and then as Paul applies them to the current situation in the church. First, God preserves a remnant in the Old Testament. This concept of a remnant, which Isaiah speaks of, is found all throughout the Old Testament. At its heart, the concept of a remnant reflects two main things, both judgment and hope. Judgment because many will perish in judgment for their sin, and yet hope because God in his mercy will save a remnant. We see this, this principle of a remnant already in the early chapters of Genesis, when Noah and his family are the remnant of humanity preserved through the flood. He can also consider Abraham and his offspring as a remnant preserved by God out of the rest of fallen mankind. But as the Old Testament proceeds, we see this concept applied more and more to Abraham's own descendants as they are continually unfaithful to the Lord and are whittled down to a remnant by one judgment after another. During Moses' own day, the Lord was ready to cut off all Israel after their worship of the golden calf and to begin again with Moses as the sole remnant. But instead, because of Moses' intercession, he preserved a much larger remnant of the people. During the wicked reign of Ahab, when the majority of Israel abandons the Lord to worship Baal, God preserves his faithful servant, Elijah. When Elijah thinks that he is the only one who remains, the Lord says to him, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 1 Kings 19.18 Now as history progresses, Israel continues to rebel against the Lord and they move toward their eventual exile. This theme of remnant becomes even more prominent. The prophet Amos predicts great judgments to come upon Israel and Judah, but he also speaks of a remnant to be preserved and then restored. James, Jesus' brother, quotes from Amos at the Jerusalem Council in, Amos, er, in Acts 15. Quoting from Amos, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And we have the concept of remnant featured prominently in the prophecy of Isaiah, as Paul quotes here. And then we have Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, who writes, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, Micah 7.18. And as we move forward, 
in biblical history to Judah's Babylonian exile, followed by their return, the people increasingly see themselves and they take this name upon themselves, the remnant. Jeremiah prophesies, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Jeremiah 23.3. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are filled with remnant language. Although Israel had returned from their exile and they are able to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, they are but a remnant of their former glory. In all this, we see remnant theology as one of both judgment but also hope. God has severely judged his people for their continual rebellion, and yet he never fails to preserve a remnant. The remnant mourns what has been lost, and yet they continue to give thanks to God for his mercy upon them. As Schreiner writes, God's mercy is cherished against the wider canvas of his wrath. Let's consider how Paul uses these verses in Isaiah to speak of how God preserves a remnant in the New Testament. Paul already established earlier in the chapter, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And this lines up perfectly with Isaiah's prophecy, that though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Isaiah speaks of, coven, of, of judgment coming upon God's people for their sins, a judgment that will be swift and complete. As Paul has already established back in Romans 3, that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. All deserve God's wrath. And so when it comes to sin, deserving death, Israel is no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. The only difference is that God chooses to have mercy, to preserve a remnant. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God fulfills his promises. He keeps his word through his his prophet Isaiah. He saves a a remnant. But there is nothing binding God to make that remnant a certain size. In Paul's day, many Jews expected God to save the majority of them. Perhaps a a small remnant would be lost to his judgment. But as Paul points out, God is doing just what he had promised through Isaiah. The majority of Israel in those days had rejected Christ and would be lost. Only the remnant who had put their faith in the Messiah would be saved. For this, Paul grieves He mourns and laments over his brethren who had rejected Christ. And yet he continues to give thanks to God for his mercy for the remnant of true Israel. Though the remnant was smaller in Paul's days than many Jews thought it would be or should be, Ashreiner writes, No one can legitimately complain that the preservation of a remnant justifies a complaint against God. The saving of any is mercy, and God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. 
These verses provide an appropriate conclusion to Paul's discussion on the sovereignty of God and salvation, which has been his teaching all throughout chapter 9. We've seen that God is righteous. His word has not failed. Just as God was righteous to cut off the majority of Israel and to save only a remnant in Isaiah's day, so he is righteous to do the same in Paul's day. And God is still at work in these same ways today as well. He is still calling his elect from among both Jews and Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel. He is still preserving a remnant of true Jews within the church. And that we continue to believe that his promises are for us and for our children. We also know and lament to know that there continue to be even those in covenant households that depart from the Lord and are not saved. When this happens, we grieve. We also know that there is a remnant for the Lord in every generation. And so we give thanks to God for his justice, but most of all for his unmerited mercy as he makes the riches of his glory known to his vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And so we say, a steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3.22 and 23. And so this is a call to you, each and every one of you today. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only source of salvation. And he offers mercy to all who will come to him in humble repentance and faith. Hear and heed this call today. Trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And if you are trusting in him, then you know that you have received the greatest gift of all. If you know the story of the first Thanksgiving Day celebrated by the pilgrims, you know that it was celebrated only by a remnant of the over 100 colonists who had set sail on the Mayflower one year after their arrival. Nearly half of them had perished due to the harsh winter and an epidemic of disease. And yet, the 50 that survived gathered to give thanks to God for preserving a remnant through that harsh first year. This year, as we gather for Thanksgiving, after another difficult year, we have much to give thanks for. Every day we give thanks to God for his provision and protection, but especially this Thursday as you gather with friends and family, as you enjoy a meal I encourage you to give thanks and praise to God most of all for his greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Christ, then God has made you a vessel for mercy and he has poured out his love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given you. And so we say, all glory be to God alone through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are righteous, that you are just, that your word 
Your promises never fail. In fact, they are fulfilled in even greater ways than we could have ever possibly imagined. We thank you that you continue to call to yourself today, even this day, those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. We thank you that this gospel is going out to the ends of the earth, and you will call to yourself those from every nation, that all the nations may praise your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that you have flung wide the gate of salvation, that you have welcomed the nations in, and we continue to rejoice that you have had mercy not only on so many, but most of all that you have had mercy on us, that you have taken pity on us sinners. Thank you for your grace. We give you all the praise and glory and honor in Jesus Christ. Amen.